Welcome to the Corporate Legal Ops Consortium podcast, where we dive deep into conversations with technology and legal ops thought leaders from across the legal ecosystem. This is Clock Talk. I'm your host, Jen McCarran. I'm on the board of directors at Clock, and I lead the Netflix legal operations and technology team. I'm joined by Tommy Ferreira, director of legal ops at Peloton, and our new Clock Talk co-host. In today's episode, we sit down with Village MD's general counsel, Wendy Rubis, along with members of their legal ops team. That's legal ops lead Demetrius Kirvasilis and contracts manager Mikal Tesfazgi Yibra. We discuss how they've built a team with diverse skill sets that have directly contributed to their success as a new and fast growing legal ops function. Spoiler alert, they're not all lawyers and science just may be our secret weapon. Let me introduce everyone we have on today. This is a very exciting episode to start. Wendy Rubis, General Counsel and Corporate Secretary at Village MD. We have the whole Village MD legal ops staff here today. So, Wendy, welcome. We have Dimitrios Kirvasilis, legal ops lead at Village MD. Did I get that right? Right. Yes. Did I sound like we were going to... In an action movie, perform yeah, a heist. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> I got the money and we're saving it for legal. Welcome, Demetrios. Next, we have Mikal Tesfazgi Yebra, contracts manager at Village MD. I got that right too. You did, John. Thank you. Best pronunciation guide of 2022. She says, here's how you say my last name. It's like, yeah, bruh, which is my language. <laughs> Makes it easy. And then last but not least, we have Tommy Ferreira, Director of Legal Ops at Peloton, who will be joining me today in a clock talk co-host capacity. Tommy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. What's up, everybody? We're talking to you all at Village MD. What prompted this episode? Wendy, we heard you speak on the big stage. Yes. At the Clock Institute in May 2022 in Las Vegas. And that's where we got this idea to pull you on here and bring some of your favorite staffers. Yes. Thank you so much. We all three attended. It was our first clock conference and it was awesome. First clock takes the big stage. Way to start small and humble. What'd you guys think of the Clock Institute in May? It was your first. Mikhail, I'll start with you. Oh my God. Like I said, I think this is honestly one of the highlights of my year attending Clock. It was just amazing to be surrounded by like-minded individuals who were in the same field as me or trying to figure out the same things as me or had the same goals. It just felt like I wasn't alone. And sometimes I know you could feel alone in this space. So it was fulfilling like 360 degrees all around. Amazing. What's the best party you went to? Your party? My party. Thanks. That's <laughs> right answer. Where Tommy and right I were featured wearing sequins pants. Yes. In a barber shop front room with Mary O'Carroll. You killed it. Thank you. Thank you. Those yeah. pants. <laughs> it's the pants and the jacket that had yes. me. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. You could see this all on LinkedIn, everyone. If you just hit my page or Mary O'Carroll's or Tommy's, there was just a period where it was only us three in photos and sequins pants. <laughs> Fun party. Demetrios, did you come to that party? I did. It was great. We really liked it. And overall, I got the feeling that I really belonged there. I felt at home. 
And this is something that I've told Wendy and the rest of the team as well. But it was great being there. The setup was amazing. It was like much bigger than I expected it, to be honest. So it's really, really nice and very well organized. And well, through Clock, we got the opportunity to be here with you. And it was just great. I love that, that you felt at home. It's important because a lot of times we're the only ones doing the thing on our team or the we're the one person function. And so it gets lonely in a lot of ways. So I like that you can go there and feel less alone and meet the you's. That's how I always say it. You get to meet the you at other companies and then have peers and a network to bounce things off of later. Number one value add of clock. Absolutely. For sure. Awesome. Wendy, how about for you, your first clock? Well, yeah, it was great. I mean, I didn't know I was really doing legal operations for so long. It wasn't really called that. What were you doing for so long? Tell us as general counsel and corporate secretary at Village MD, what were you up to? Well, I started this career more years ago than I'd want to say, 20 plus, and have always had to just sort of figure out how to do more with less. Yeah. So I started using Microsoft Access databases. Oh, yes. The first database I ever programmed. And you had to have a lady run the report for you. So I just have been figuring it out over the years. And so never really knew much about clock, but it was basically just like very validating just to hear other people, like the guys said, other people trying to figure out the same things we're trying to figure out. Amazing. Wendy, break it down for us. How long have you been at Village MD? And then how did this amazing legal ops function start? Well, I got here about five years ago at Village. I was a general counsel before and I'm a healthcare lawyer. The usual course started at a firm and worked my way over and up. So I've started sort of law departments before and I bought software, I built software. And so when I came into Village, I was the first and only lawyer And I knew I had to build a platform. We were in a time of rapid growth. So I had to build a platform that would allow me to scale. And I started doing that. I ended up finding a program locally here in Chicago. It's a master's program at Northwestern's Master's of Science and Law. And I think my first hire was from that program as just like a legal ops generalist. And both Mikal and Demetrius are also from that program. And they can speak law. So the lawyers can work with them, but they bring a different orientation that we really need. So that's just been vital to being able to manage this rapid growth is having a system and having processes and like basically buckets of where everything goes. We talked about this in our prep call, this master's program and how you've done some recruiting from there. Nicole Demetrius, can you guys drop some classes at me from your curriculum? What goes on in a master's of science and law? So Wendy touched on the law part. I would suspect there's some science part or scientific method part or something engineering like in there. I'll start with you, McCall. What's some of your classes in there and or ones you really enjoyed? Yeah, I can definitely give you classes. I think the science part definitely comes from anyone who's admitted to the program has to be a STEM student previously. So you have to be a STEM individual. Break down STEM for me. Science, technology, engineering, and math. What was your undergrad major? Science. I'm a scientist at heart. What kind of science? Biology and chemistry. Wow, both? Wow. (laughs) Yeah, right? Chemistry. Yes. 
You survived organic chem in college? I did. Orgo, as they call it? Yeah. Wow. Look at you, Jed. Did you go? No, no. But <laughs> my college romance interest was a chemistry major. Three. So I used okay. to see a lot of Simple. equations. Yes, it has a lot of equations. Yeah. Yes, yes. And a lot of configuring. And that's kind of helpful in, in my role too as a legal ops or as a contracts manager as well. It's just where a lot of configuring and a lot of putting this here and adding this here and then trying to make equal it something that you want. So yeah, the Masters of Law program definitely did aid in that. But some classes, we also had like healthcare law. I took a lot of business classes as well. And I think those business classes kind of helped me interact with the other departments that I have to work with. Being legal ops, you don't only work with legal ops, you're working with... It's all cross-functional. Yeah, it's everybody. So that was also helpful. They made you take business classes in this master's? Yeah, it was an elective and something that I wanted to do, but the law classes were mandatory. Interesting. What was your least favorite law class? (laughs) Torts? Torts wasn't bad. They made them take torts. That's where Kim Kardashian fell down, torts. (laughs) Is that where... Maybe I yeah, should yeah. she didn't like torts. No, <laughs> it wasn't bad. I feel like it's really based on the professor sometimes. But She's yeah. such a diplomat. She's not going to say yeah. that. <laughs> she, I could see that. She's not going to say it. Demetrios, let me swing over to you. First of all, undergrad major. What STEM major were you? Industrial engineering. Oh, whoa, Wendy. I know. landed an engineering They're brain. They're happily employed to the listeners. <laughs> These Amazing. people are not available. Amazing. Yeah. They're not available, Wendy, except for the right price. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So industrial engineering jumped STEM wise into this master's. What was a class or two that you enjoyed in your curriculum with this science and law? Yeah. So our classes range basically from classes like contracts, business law. I took an AI class and its implications that it has in the legal field and how AI can be used within the legal field with very good professor, Professor Lena. Oh, Dan Lena? Yeah. I know Dan Lena. Yeah. One of my favorite classes. I like torts, to be honest, as well. I also took a two semester entrepreneurship course which I liked. We also had classes of how statistics is used in trials for evidence. There was a lot of like fascinating and interesting classes in this program. And as Mikhail mentioned, everybody comes from a STEM background. So the classes are tailored in the intersection of law, business and technology, which is very interesting. I love this. Here's another fun pop quiz. I like pop quizzing. Show of hands, everyone. Who has taken a statistics course in their undergrad or graduate work? We got 100%. (laughs) We got everyone on the call. Who has taken statistics more than once? Demetrios, McCall. Okay. And me, Wendy and Tommy are down. Did anyone take it more than two, three times or four? Demetrios. Okay. He's a stats whiz. He can process a data set. So Demetrius, you obviously took like the math foundational statistics as part of your engineering major. Then you took a statistics for industrial engineers somewhere. Is that true? Yeah, there's a lot of statistics actually that goes in with the industrial engineering curriculum. Maybe one and two. More than three. Two, three, four. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah, not my favorite class, I guess, but it's inevitable. Like you have to take it. There's a lot of like modeling, deterministic yeah. modeling, operational research, which I guess is not really statistics, but. Right. It's data sets and moving things around. So you took it four times? I think I lost count. I took classes that had the stats title, statistics title, at least three statistics classes, but then all of the other industrial engineering, or not all, but a lot of the other industrial engineering classes had statistics in them. So three plus. Yeah. It's been a while since I took it. but It's one of those classes or disciplines where it's hard for a lot of people, but a lot, I remember my parents saying, it's important you take this. It will be useful in the world. And thank goodness, I took it at least four times through undergrad, grad, and thank goodness I did because it comes into play just everywhere in our work in terms of analyzing, looking at data sets from small to medium to larger and trying to find trends, patterns. Like, how do you know when to build? This is my team does a lot of data-driven analysis. How do you know when to build a support triage kind of function around all your tech products? Or how do you know what feature to build next when you get... something that we are always trying to solve. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say, at what point are you just answering questions? At what point are we now a help desk? Demetrius and I just talked about this last week. At what point do we have to like have, you know, a count of the number of questions around something? And then that informs where we need to go further. It's a constant. I think that's something that a lot of people get, general counsel in particular, don't realize is this is not something you build and then it's just good. That's done. It's always growing and changing and evolving. And so much of what we do as a function of legal ops folks is produce metrics coming out of all the systems you have all built and configured. So it's when do you use that and how do you use that? And my point here is people take statistics or read the stats for dummies books. Well, and these guys help me because Jen, I have no training in how to do this kind of thing. And so we do a report every month. These guys pull stuff out of our system and it informs productivity, volume, it informs so much. And of course, what it always does, like every data report is just drives all these more questions. It just provokes questions. But I'm always trying to figure out how to do these reports. I wish there was like a gallery you could go to. It was like wine and cheese and legal reports. Well, there is, but you have to build it. We need to have a legal gallery of like, here's how I show you know, and some standards. Here's how I show contract metrics. You have to build it. And unfortunately, there's no one gallery out there that you could buy and bring in because it's all a matter of how your brains work, when do you as general counsel's brain works, and how your business works, how your systems input and output all of this stuff. But I would tell these guys, try to find samples and examples. And you really can't. It's very hard. You have to start at the bottom, as Drake would say in the song. <laughs> Jen, we'd love to see yours and you could, we'll show you ours. I like the idea, though, of an actual art gallery that's visualizing all yes. like next year o'clock. We'll have data visualization. Yes, I love that idea. Or I wanted to do like a reality show. Here's a data set. Go, go make something out of this. Do you remember Tableau Tuesdays or whatever they used to have? 
and they would just put a public data set out there and people would create reports out of it. That's like Design Star and HGTV. It's like, here's a corkscrew, a can of paint and $100. Redo the room. Yeah. That's basically what we do with, with a corkscrew, a can of paint and $100. We have to basically spin up a world. Well, this is all fascinating. It all is about data. My future vision for the legal ops and tech lab where all of my team sits at work is it's just all screens lining the whole room. Every one of them is projecting a metric that we run inside our business insights platform, which is something akin to Tableau, but not Tableau. We use a little Tableau, but we don't use it for our main one because it's hard to bring legal people into Tableau. Yeah, we don't use it either. Yeah. So there's others out there that kind of are more elementary and we use one of those for now. But then I want the main screen, like the 96 inch screen to be a dollar count in like super size font of every dollar we've saved in productivity. And it's just this big pink number. Kind of has a prices right feel, which I don't hate. Exactly. And I will be standing there with the long, tall microphone narrating. And I will say at the end of every workday, have your pet spayed or neutered. That's good. Yes, thank so you. Good. Thank you. But Jen, let me ask you this. Do you ever feel like I'm so happy with that report? That's right. No, nothing's ever Never. done. Hashtag legal ops. This is all just an iteration. I mean, no, but you have to have both happiness and misery with this work. Like happiness, you put the measuring stick behind you and you go, holy cow. We went from zero to one because now we can measure contract volume. I mean, this happened at my last two roles. If you put that stick from here forward, you're like, oh God, there's so much to do. And there's so many directions this even one dashboard could go. And you have to envision it, be terrified by the work, and then just start back scientific method back at where you are, hypothesis, prove it, go and move in those directions. Mikhail's nodding. I just said her happy place. You did. You have no idea. That is what I use day in, day out, the five steps to the scientific method and everything that I do. And it works well. It works actually for everything. Can you tell us the five steps so that everyone probably studied this in some (laughs) schooling, but break down, Mikhail and Demetrios chime in, five steps of the scientific (laughs) method. Go. I do hope that my professors are listening to this podcast The first step is always asking a question. You need a question. You need a problem to solve. What do we need here? What is the goal? And once you have that, you come up with your hypothesis, which is basically an educated, testable. It has to be testable, right? Statement. A hypothesis would then be, if we do this solution X or program Y, it will reduce the work. Number three is then to test the hypothesis. And, you know, with this and legal ops, you usually have to build something before you test it. And that's where you have a lot of work. That is where you're meeting with your internal key stakeholders, asking them what they want, what they need and how we're going to need it. And then I'm putting what's the trigger, what field does it need to go to? And once that is really the big step, and once you have that, then you start the testing. And once it's ready, it goes live for the organization to start using And this is where the hypothesis is being tested. And so then from the time that it goes live for about three to six months, depending on the process that we've built, we will monitor this process closely to one, ensure it's working properly, right? It's something that's new to the system, but we're also wanting to track the data of how much is it being used in a day, in a month, in a week, or however it is. 
fourth step is then to analyze our data and come to a conclusion. And then this is where basically Wendy mentioned the monthly report that we have in our legal department. And that has insight on, especially in our processes, like what has been completed and it measures volume. But we also reach out to the internal key stakeholders to ask them, how do they like it? What do we need to improve? And that measures effectiveness because we want to see, hey, is this something that we want to continue having for the future or keep going with it? Or is this something that we built and it's not being used? So do we need to shut it down? Is it worth continuing? And then the final step is to communicate your findings with your key stakeholders. My main key stakeholder is honestly my legal department. And that's because we have different subgroups. And sometimes what I build for maybe the vendor side or procurement or something can be very beneficial to the compliance folks. And so once I let them know, they could be like, oh, Mikal, that's a great thing. Maybe we could use it here in compliance. And that has been really beneficial for us as well. Just kind of bringing all of our minds together and creating processes where they're needed. So those are the five. So at the end, when you're drawing conclusions, you're communicating what worked, what didn't to the stakeholder, what happens, this is so big in science and in scientific research, is that hypothesis you put up front in step two, you are either proving it or nullifying it. Correct. So you were either succeeding, yep, we were right, or failing, we were wrong, and here's why. Exactly. And the failing here's why is so crucial because I think you can learn so much from failing, right? Why did that process not work? Why? I am fist pumping. (laughs) Of course. And how can we make it work or what could we've done to make it better? And sometimes when you fail, honestly, it might have just not been the right process for that exact thing. Maybe it works better for risk. Maybe it works better for BD somewhere else. So Just failing and understanding why it's failed is also crucial as proving your hypothesis right as well. Demetrius, is this all ringing all the bells for you as an engineer of the industry major? It does, actually. I think, Mikal, she was right on point. So when they asked me what I do and I tell them that I'm an industrial engineer and then I switched to legal ops, they're like, why? How did this happen? But if you... Think about it, industrial engineering and legal ops are not that much different. Industrial engineers are trained to optimize complex processes, systems, and organizations by improving and implementing the grading systems of people and money, information, technology, and whether that is in a manufacturing setting or an operating room or at a legal department, in my case. And On the other hand, legal operations professionals aim to optimize business processes, activities, and personnel with a scope to enable the legal department to deliver higher quality of legal services. So you can see these two definitions have a lot in common. And in my opinion, I think that legal ops need more industrial engineers because we have a methodical way of thinking and an understanding of complex processes. It's methodical, it's analytical, it follows Mm -hmm. a framework. It tracks broadly to the scientific method, which Mikhail so brilliantly took us through. And if we run all of our projects, Dimitrios, like I think you're getting to this point, if we run all of our projects through those frameworks, we'll get to the answers. 
we will get to the answers, which means we'll get the legal department to a better place of learning and knowing which way to go to continue to optimize. Demetrius is so polite, but one of the things he's not saying is that being an industrial engineer, like in the legal, we're so at the beginning. So we're at ground zero still, it feels like. You can be like an entry-level industrial engineer and add a lot of value because Demetrius will say something and he's, again, he's very polite, but this is anathema to lawyers, but he'll say like, just one idea that I had was maybe we should do project plans when we're going to do a new project. (laughs) Wow, write it down. No, no, lawyers are not taught to, think about projects the way everyone else on this call is taught to think about projects in a very methodical way to help bring people through. And that's okay. That's why Demetrius is here to introduce that to the legal folks and lay the plan out as I'm sure you do over and over. And look, lawyers are highly intelligent. They can read that quickly and go, oh, okay. It's almost like wayfinding people through everything. I more and more look at us as wayfinding scientists that have somehow wound up inside legal departments in-house. But without it, we're stuck between steps one and five. We'll go, um, we don't have enough help. And then we'll go, why is it this working? You know, but we don't have insight. And so I just would tell my peers, like having these kind of minds, it transforms how you work. A hundred percent. I love this deep off the script topic. I've gone through your majors back to forward because I'm really obsessed with the scientific method. And I think that it's a great framework that you can put all of your project management toolkits that we all gravitate towards as well. Those fit very neatly inside all of this. And I believe that we all have to have a hybrid toolkit to solve in these various environments we're in. And I've never been so happy to be back in an environment for me where I get to use the scientific method a lot. And everything I put out in my strategy, I'm like, hypothesis, (laughs) doc management will save your life, (laughs) but it could fail. And step five, we'll be back. We're going to go gather the data and run the experiment and then be bold enough to come back and go, so it failed. And here's why and how, and maybe we weren't ready. Maybe the scope was too big. Maybe the tech is too complex for this tech architecture, all the things, but We have room to experiment and that therefore innovate rather than follow. This is not following a recipe book, what we're doing. I like McCall's point. I always love a fail fast reference, but I especially like, I'll tag on to it for your engineer brains, which is really documenting the failure. So when you go at it again, next, you don't sort of repeat the same steps to lead you to failure again. I like that. How do you do it today? Is it verbal? Are you writing something up? What do they call them? Like retros or postmortems and documenting it on paper? Well, I don't really think we do. I mean, we do a monthly report. We're always implementing projects and we're always in dialogue and go, this didn't work. Usually it's like someone's mad. One of the areas where these projects fail, where recall is so strong at Demetrios, is bringing other people into the fold, getting their feedback, bringing them in so they don't just feel like you threw this down on them. You know, that's a failure point, I think, sometimes or sometimes it's like minimum viable. It's successful, but we immediately want it to be better. But I don't think that we really define that. Maybe that's something this is kind of a good thought provoking reminder. Something to think about. Sometimes might we write it down. Tommy, what about in your realm? Do you guys have a method? 
Yeah. I mean, we mostly hold each other and huddle in a corner. <laughs> yes. That's my favorite part. Also work. <laughs> the reason why I said it is because I bet it's an area we can all do better in. But I have some loose notes here and there. But I bet documenting really well the hypothesis around what we think failed probably will like be 2.0. I think it's a project management element that you bring into it so that you don't actually repeat the failable course of action. Yeah. And that's one of the big phases of project management for all the frameworks have something like that. And it could be a feedback retro after an agile project management. You'll take it forward into the design of the next solution, even if the solution is like X and you were at A. It's so cool. I love all these frameworks. I'm going to take us on a big pivot into a topic that we've all lived and breathed and it's hypergrowth and this concept of blistering speed pace of change in these businesses. Wendy, you have talked about at Village MD growing this wonderful team from one person to 22. Is that right? In 3 years. I'll call that hypergrowth. How did you approach this hypergrowth. First of all, did you know you were going to hypergrow or did you just find out as you went? I knew I was joining a growth company. I believe in the mission. We're trying to change healthcare many ways, the same way that I believe law needs to change, make it more proactive, more comprehensive, et cetera. But no, I did not understand that we would be growing that fat. And even if I had, you have to actually go through that to really know what that's like. But the answer for me I had to rely heavily on technology. I think of it as like buckets. Everything has a place because I may not be able to get it all done, but at least it's there. And bringing in these legal professionals, these legal ops professionals really help with that to extend the reach of the lawyers and manage the architecture. And as we're doing that, sort of wrapping around, so I'm bringing in experienced lawyers. They may not have ever worked in systems sort of wrapping around them. Like I'm not trying to convince and persuade them and get them interested in it, but I'm just sort of wrapping it around them at first. I'm letting that kind of take hold. Let me drop some fun stats and facts here. Village MD founded in 2013. Is that right? Chicago-based med tech startup and approaching 4,000 and still private. Revenue generating and it looks like still receiving series funding rounds, a la a startup up through, I see through 2020, at least a couple funding rounds. Yeah. Our most recent funding was we have a strategic partner now through an investment by Walgreens. Yes, that's right. I heard about that one. And then over a billion dollars in revenue startup. Yeah, that'll get you hyper growing. That sounds like the pressure cooker of a lifetime. Question, Demetrius, McCall, Tommy, have you guys ever been in hypergrowth environments before you stepped into Village MD and or Peloton? I see a no. No, for me. Not for me either. This is my first in this regard. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wendy, your first. It's really something, isn't it, everyone? This is my second and I describe it as I'm not moving and I'm sweating. That's what it feels like when you're in a hypergrowth environment. There's no way to describe. You have to actually do it to get it. You can kind of conceptually understand. And I think you kind of have to love it. It does require you to be entrepreneurial. There's 
certain amount of hustle. <laughs> Entrepreneurial, certain amount of hustle. And then I want to throw in this drinking from the fire hose, that expression. I never knew what that meant until I walked into Spotify. And everyone's looking at me right now with wide eyes laughing. Demetrius, <laughs> what was it like for you coming in? You were fire hose drinking. Yeah, for a while. At first, it was kind of overwhelming, but then you kind of get used to it. You can adopt. And I think that my background also has played a role in this because I've worked in projects with companies from manufacturing to trading to hospitals. Then this has allowed me to develop an all around way of thinking. I consider myself kind of a generalist, if we can say this. And so this multidisciplinary background made this drinking from the fireplace experience a little less quote unquote painful. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely something that I think that you kind of need to go through in order to be able to cope with it. Hope. I'm coping with my hyper growth transition. You cope. That's the right word. Yeah. It is coping. How long do we think it takes to get used to or kind of training and broken in everyone to a hyper growth environment. I found that four months I click in. I would tell you this about me calling Demetrios. What they had to do, we sort of had classes come in of people and they were like in my second class. And this was the training. Okay, you talk. I did try to talk it up a minute. I go, you're going to do contracts. That's a whole career. There's a lot of things there. You're going to do contracts. So go do that. That was sort of it. And she had to sort it out. Now, she said new people coming in should not have to go through that. And she's created this whole training curriculum. And so the newer people now were a little bit more mature and same with Demetrius. But when they came in, it was like, Demetrius, you're on the transaction seat. Go do that. That was it. Wow. That's your hyper growth onboarding. Hi, welcome. Here's a pen. Here's a computer. And here's an assignment. Have fun. Buckle up. McCall, how long before you felt like you started to adjust to the hyper growth environment? I would say maybe like three months. It's also because like I just wanted to already be acclimated. It was more of a want, not like, oh, when I get there, it was going to, no, I want to do this now. And there was when I started, it was in 2020, we were really just building out our system. And so there was just a lot waiting to be built. Then we gave you a PDF. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to that. I love cracking into hypergrowth because there's still so many startups, young legal departments, young legal companies, and anyone listening can be walking into their first ever role or legal's first ever ops role. And it's a startup. What do you do? So I think it's really important to know that you drink from the fire hose for four months and you feel sometimes sick and you're like, I'm on a roller coaster. I'm going to throw up and I kind of like it. This is fun. Oh, but it's cool. And then like all things, we are human beings. We can adapt to that. So let's just pivot forward into you guys get your first project or Demetrius McCall, you're working on something together. What did one of your first collaborations or tech implementations look like? where you were building something or implementing it and then had to take that out to the team? I think my first and one that I'm kind of really proud of was the implementation of our providers, which is Physician Employment Agreements, PEAs, Workflow and Sales Hub. We really needed to figure out a process to 
have our market presidents or whoever was signing for those markets, their approvals before we even started reviewing the agreement. And Wendy is the star of this show, to be honest. She would always send us like links. During her weekends, she would search Microsoft and SharePoint updates and, you know, what they're doing, cool things out there. And she sent me this thing about like approvals and requests. And I was like, oh, wait, why don't we use this? Why don't we have like a markets column that is going to be connected to all their market presidents and whatever market that they're selecting this provider is in, it will route to that market president for approval. If they approve, it will come to legal and we'll start the review without any back and forth. And at first, you know, it was a little bit hesitant or kind of like, mm. and that's a lot with legal ops. But, you know, I have a person who believes in me at the top and we always say change has to come from the bottom up, top down for it to work really well. So we were able to do it. And it's one of the processes. If it ever goes down, we'll have it. In our last few minutes here, I want to take that example and go right forward into something we touched on in our prep call on the topic of change management, this kind of wraparound effect, Wendy, that you spoke about. And how do you do change management in a hypergrowth environment when everyone's eyes are bloodshot from work and moving so fast? How do you wrap around your stakeholders and bring them forward with an example like McCall just talked about? Well, it's a combination of having these scientific legal professionals. So with the lawyer and where I've stumbled in the past and other roles is we have technology, but the lawyers won't use it. It requires them to change how they work in a way that they cannot do the volume of work that they're doing and do that at the same time. And so the breakthrough here was just this thing I've just started calling the wraparound, which is they don't have to change. They just have to keep somebody copied at first. And that's how it starts. Don't do anything different. Just copy me call and she'll take it from there. She'll do the entries. She'll do the data piece. Okay. And so that's how it starts. And then after that, I work with Mikal and Dimitros and others, and we run a report. Well, that report tells the story of the lawyer's work in a way that they do become interested in. They go, well, that is a right. Or I'll go, well, it looks like we had more or less of this. Or And so that's then reinforcing the idea that they need to make sure everything's getting in the right place because we're pulling data. So it just sort of goes incrementally from there. Where I've fallen down before is waiting for people, especially lawyers, to change how they work in order to start. That just, you'll never get there in my experience. You'll never get there. And we've all tried that way. And some environments of the past have welcomed that way. But I love this. I think it's really breakthrough, modern change management. It's about empathy and meeting people where they are and entering into their space. You're occupying the least amount of space or you bring them into it rather than burden them with some new 25 things they have to do and remember. I love that. McCall, you're nodding. You know this wraparound. Oh, yes. This is the best way to bring them in. If you throw something at them, it's just not going to work well. And it's new. It's new, right? It's, it's new. It's not something that they have done before, even at previous law firms. So legal ops is very new. So it's something to ease. Once you ease them in, they see the benefit too, right? So then them themselves want to do it for their own. Tommy, what do you think? Yeah, thank you. I was about to say in change management, I found there's two breeds of people you want to look for. The 
influencers and the resistors. And you want to spend a lot of time with each of them. You get the influencers to do your bidding and you hold the resistors' hands closely. You get them to buy in. You prove to them what's in it for them and you get to the buy-in by showing them what is going to make their life easier. I love that, Tommy. That's great. It's very good. Steal it. That's what we all do. We steal the best ideas. We borrow and leverage (laughs) them from one another. But it's really important to know who your influencers are. We even literally named our first rollout group of a solution, the influencers, hoping to like hype them up. (laughs) They didn't care at all about the nomenclature. They're like, what is in this for me? I'm like, right, right. Back to the point. That's what we mean. But you sell them and they can turn around and sell maybe the legal practice area. And when you're working in contract or document management, I am finding so many of the influencers are those contract management professionals, contract managers, contract analysts, kind of that legal professional layer paralegals. They're often the first ones to try when it comes to contract management stuff. And then you you might get your occasional drafter who's like, I love tech and we'll saddle up with you. But generally they love drafting and and we should let them love drafting. That's exactly right. Well, we did it, you guys. We did the convo and I'd like to thank you for coming on Clock Talk. And once again, letting me take this conversation completely off script and then like somehow finding our way back. It's the magic of what happens when you go live and you're in a different day. And I really needed to know about the backgrounds and the f- behind your team, because this methodology of hiring and building a team, Wendy, I think more legal ops, general counsels, et cetera, leaders should copy this. Get scientists or people up on the scientific method. The- Other scientists than those on the call. Yeah. So when, please don't take <laughs> Wendy's scientific people, but look to these wonderful programs like coming out of Northwestern, the Masters of Science and Law, where Dan Linna is a professor and he's been speaking, presenting in our legal ops industry circuits for years about all the innovative educational lab-like testing that they're doing. It's wonderful. And to Wendy, your point, we are just at the beginning of a whole new frontier in work and innovating legal departments. Yes. Jen, thank you so much for all that you and Clock have done and for inviting us on today. You're welcome. See you all out there soon. That about wraps up this episode of Clock Talk. Thank you to Wendy, Demetrius, and McCall for the glimpse into Village MD's approach to problem solving, navigating hypergrowth, and change management. You can catch this and other episodes of Clock Talk wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. Until next time.